Hello, everyone. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. Welcome to Business Casual, our weekly podcast with my co-host, Maria Whitvilla and Caroline Diorthy Edwards. We want to talk about a couple things today. One is AGAC. Now, you probably don't know what AGAC is, and I hate acronyms, but it stands for the Association of International Graduate Admissions Consultants. And in late May, they met, and these are largely MBA admission consultants, not necessarily all graduate schools. And one thing that they do is they talk about the industry, they talk about trends, and they meet with admission directors of various schools who often kind of tell what they expect in the marketplace, as well as how they're going to maybe change their application requirements or their essays. One of the big changes um, this year at a major school is Columbia Business School, which for years has had a rolling admissions policy. And for the first time in, I don't in memory for sure, uh, has gone to a traditional three-round format. Maria attended the AGAC conference, and I wonder if you might share some of the highlights. Yeah, absolutely. It was a super packed, I mean, these are conferences that go from 8 a.m. until 10 p.m. at night, well, including meals. <laughs> it's not all, it's not all conferencing stuff. But yeah, a few of the takeaways that were that were really surprising uh to me that I that I can share were first of all, you know, we we have talked here on this podcast several times about AI and generative AI and chat GPT and what is that gonna mean for writing essays, et cetera. And it was interesting. There was there was sort of a range of of opinions from admissions officers. Some of them seemed, on average, a lot less freaked out about it or concerned about it than I expected them to be. For example, one of the officers said something like, well, we can tell if a candidate has written an application for another school. So I feel pretty confident that we'll be able to tell if a candidate has written one for with ChatGPT. Uh, another officer sort of likened it to using Grammarly, right? It's it's just sort of the natural evolution. We started with spell check and that little paper clip in Microsoft. <laughs> Probably before a lot of listeners to this podcast were born, you guys, there used to be a little paper clip in Microsoft <laughs> that would appear and try to help you, and it was not helpful. Um, you know, we started with with spell check, and then we went to grammar check, and then it was Grammarly, and the, and so this person just well, this is just sort of a natural evolution of that. Um, because the chat GPT cannot invent the content for you, no matter how good it is, but maybe it could be sort of a writing tool to help people become better writers. As a side wow. note, this is not AGAC, this is not AGAC related necessarily, but I know an English teacher who's a high school English teacher in, in Los Angeles who said that she's actually starting to incorporate chat GPT into some of her lessons because she's like, it's here to stay. And if it can help my students learn to become better writers themselves, then we just have to embrace it. Anyway, that was an intro. I was like, oh, I hadn't thought of it being a tool to help people, like if you write it your way and then you put it into chat GPT and it spits back something that's a lot better than you, maybe it teaches you. I think that's overly optimistic because I think people are may or may not want to put in that level of effort and they're just tell me to do it for me. But so anyway. You know, Maria, Maria, I was recently at Cambridge and a professor told me that he wrote an article and then he put it into chat GPT and he asked the bot to edit the article and it, and it really functioned as an editor as well and a rewrite person. So there is that. Yeah, I think, I mean, hopefully, you know, I, th I think the challenge though would be if ChatGPT, it, it might know how to cut out words, but how do we know that it's cutting out the best words <laughs> in sure. terms of what's relevant for an MBA admissions reader and what isn't? It might just cut out words willy-nilly, uh, but also cut out really good stuff in addition to really irrelevant stuff. Um, and as we so know, anyway, it makes I was, up stuff too. 
it just might it, sometimes it just makes it what well, was some of the stuff yeah where the when listeners can find that old podcast episode and and the one where it made up uh, some fun facts about john randomly for, <laughs> i think it was your 25 exactly. <laughs> and you know, know it, what's interesting is that uh, OpenAI calls this uh, hallucinations, and they basically justify uh, ChatGPT making up stuff when when it can't find information as exactly what humans would do. They just make up stuff. I find, <laughs> I find the whole notion of calling <laughs> hallucinations fascinating sounds like he's on drugs <laughs> from now on whenever i make any sort of mistake at all i'm just going to call it a hallucination <laughs> it be my excuse for now uh, but yeah so in general i was really surprised because i thought there was going to be a lot of hand wringing and gnashing of yeah. teeth and, and wow. stress uh but overall it was a pretty like pretty much spell check but on steroids or on or on LSD as a case. <laughs> um, another thing that was interesting was different different opinions about the alternate tests that are coming up. So, in other words, the new the new GMAT, the new GRE. Uh, you know, I, I think I think Harvard has said that they will not accept the new the new GMAT this year just because it's coming out a little too close to the round one deadline, and then you know they want our people. Should they wait? Should they not? Just like let's just not even introduce that variable into the mix. Uh, I believe that's been their position so far. But another school said something like, um, I'll take any measure of academic horsepower I can get. Uh, and so whether it's a, you know, it's a, whether it's a short GMAT, a long GMAT, a short GRE, uh, I don't care. I just want to know that they can handle the work in my program. So right. overall, I was also surprised by just there sort of seemed to be kind of a, yeah, sure, bring it on attitude mm -hmm. about the new tests. Um, and then another trend that, that I had sort of, I, I think some of us who, who work in this field had noticed anecdotally, but they confirmed it, uh, was that there was an, a larger influx of older candidates this in this year's applicant pool, sort of a, a noticeably so. And I think the uh, the theory was that because of the pandemic, perhaps people were either waiting to see what would happen with the pandemic, or perhaps they had to care for elderly parents, or for whatever reason, they suspect that what happened is that there was a, a buildup of people maybe in their late 20s, early 30s who were thinking of applying to business school and then did not apply to business school. And now with the pandemic, quote unquote, over, they all kind of appeared this year. Um, so the hope is that things will level out a bit more in the next year or two and that that will not continue. Although someone from from one of the schools said, you know, it, it seems to him that perhaps the current MBA as it stands, given that it is targeting people at a certain point in their lives, at a certain point in their careers, maybe some of the schools should start reconsidering what they offer and what is the MBA. And maybe there is a, a full-time MBA option, not an exec, not just the executive MBA, but maybe a full-time MBA option for people who might be a little bit later uh, in their lives versus the, what we think of as a typical MBA candidate. Uh, I right. don't think anyone. I don't think anyone jumped up and said, "Yes, we're going to offer that tomorrow. We're going to restructure everything to to cater <laughs> to this audience." But it was an interesting. It was an interesting uh, thought exercise, right? We've seen a proliferation of the master's programs are targeting more early stage people in their mm -hmm. career. So it'll be interesting to see if if that then follows with more full time types of options for people who might be a little bit a little bit later. But so those were the three. The three things that I took away. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, now, was there was there any talk about um, volume of applicants uh, in the current or in the forthcoming application cycle? Do people expect apps to go up, down, stay the same? 
you know, I think, I think it's really anyone's guess. I think that there's just everyone kind of like, we don't know what's going to happen with the upcoming season. We don't know what's going to happen. I think right now, honestly, a lot of the admissions officers are just so worried about summer melt. Um, And the, and that is to say like the people they give the offers to, Oh, here's another thing that, that a couple of them, a couple of them um, shared is that, some, they've they've found a lot of people have started putting in multiple deposits goals, um, like that. In, in other words, like that's always happened, right. People will always take the bird in the hand or three birds in the hand versus the, you know, like why not put in a bunch of deposits? But but one of them noted that like that's happening a lot, and that and that's that makes sense from a candidate's perspective, right? Why not play the field a little bit longer? Uh, but it also makes it very stressful for an admissions officer who doesn't know just because you have you know, 1500 bucks in hand from someone, they might still disappear on you. Uh, and so I do think that I think the summer is not going to be a fun one for a lot of our, of our colleagues and peers and people that we like who work in admissions. Cause I think they're people that they thought were going to apply or sorry, who were going to enroll, uh, just might whoop, vanish. And that is very stressful. Yeah. Caroline, what are your thoughts about Maria's observations? Yeah, it was very interesting. I was particularly interested to hear what they had to say about AI. I do think that the schools are still trying to figure it out, and that may be why they didn't have like a clear policy. I think, um, and, and I was checking online, you know, what the schools say about their policies on AI, and and it's sort of a a, a, a moving target at the moment. And I think the schools are sort of struggling how to juggle, um, you know, there's a fine line to tread, right, for business schools, because on one hand, they need um, to embrace AI because their students need to understand how it works and understand how to leverage this technology um, for their future roles, right? That needs to be sort of integrated into the curriculum so that they can really know how to use that strategically in whatever role they're going into. But at the same time, they're academic institutions with standards to uphold. And I can imagine that um, professors are not too keen on students using AI willy-nilly to do all of their assignments. And I would imagine that there would have to be some consistency at some point in policies that they have for uh, on the academic side and in admissions. So so I, I from what I understand, I think the schools are sort of, you know, trying to figure this out, it's sort of all happened so quickly and it, it, it's not easy to to figure out what the implications are for admissions um, and then academically, um, as regards academic policies, and then also as regards, you know, helping students learn about it and, and be able to understand how they can leverage AI in the future. So I think, you know, it's a very complex issue for schools and um I suspect that there are a lot more discussions going on behind closed doors that they're not they're not necessarily sharing in public yet. Yeah, right. Now this year's conference was in New York and Connecticut, which probably means Yale and the New York schools. Um, did you pick up any intelligence, Maria, as to why Columbia went to a more traditional three round format for their deadlines this year? You know, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to speak for them on this. I just. I would suspect that just in terms of the the complexity involved with with having to manage rolling deadlines and and the you know the early decision and you know if what one of the admissions officers said is true about people putting in multiple deposits, then 
the early action, um, the early the binding early decision of Colombia perhaps was starting to become essentially meaningless, right? As more and more candidates mm. were, I think, applying early to, to Colombia getting in and then saying, woohoo, I now have a six thousand, you know, for six thousand dollars, I have a call option on an amazing school. Now it's time to apply to some other schools in round one and see how well I do. Uh, I suspect that's how a lot of people were using early decision recently. And if that started increasing, then it effectively, from a yield management perspective, it makes the early decision not nearly as useful as it is intended to be. But, you know, one one quick thing, you know, Caroline mentioned a second ago, she made the great point that AI tools are here to stay as so schools need to uh, be able to to train their students to adapt to it. You know, the, the dean of Columbia Business School spoke to us, and, and here's a little plug for Columbia. He pointed out that they are incorporating a ton of AI, a whole bunch of technology and, and forward-facing classes into their curriculum. And something like um, a huge percentage of their of their electives didn't even exist five years ago, that they are constantly refreshing. I can't remember if it was like 20, 30, 40% of their electives are constantly being refreshed. Um, and I obviously every school is going to always keep up with the times, but it did seem like a, an overwhelmingly high number of 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 elective refreshes and it's something like they they introduced a, a class on python programming for mbas and again a huge i want to say roughly 30 percent or, or more perhaps of mba students have taken that python class um mm. as sort of mm. a sign that you know students realizing that these skills are just are going to be valuable and so business schools i think are instead of saying like well you know go take computer science 101 down at the undergrad campus um I think schools are, are going to in, increasingly incorporate that. So we can definitely start seeing more out of that from Columbia's curriculum. Uh, right. All schools as well, but it's just their top of mind because they hosted us. <laughs> exactly. Now, and, and of course, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of schools are now posting their application deadlines uh, for this forthcoming admission cycle. And a number of them, most of them who have posted deadlines, have posted their essays. Uh, we see any interesting changes uh, on the essay front and what is expected of applicants this forthcoming season? Caroline, you see anything interesting? So Haas has introduced a um, video question. So I, I think that's interesting. And we've discussed before that, you know, there has been a trend for increasing use of video in applications over the past few years. And that um, you know, with the advent of AI, that it makes sense for schools to perhaps rely more heavily on tools like video because it's perhaps harder to um, to gain that than it is a, a written application with with um, with with AI tools and ChatGPT and so on. So unlike some of the other schools um, where which use the Kira platform um, to generate questions that you would need to respond to fairly spontaneously in a sort of interview style. Um, so schools like INSEAD, for example, use the Kira platform and they will give you a um, 45 seconds to prepare and then 60 seconds to respond, right? And they would cut you off after that. So it's more of a sort of spontaneous exercise. Um, with this Haas video, you can prepare it and in your own time. Um, and record it. And I think you have, you can prepare a two minute video to introduce yourself. So I'd ask you to briefly introduce yourself to the admissions committee, explain which leadership principle um, resonates most with you. So it's um, referring back to the Berkeley defining leadership principles. And I think you mentioned earlier, 
Maria, that that was one of the interview questions before, so that they've brought this forward from interview into the um, the initial application um, and, and incorporated that as a video question. So I think those video questions are very useful. And, and of course, you know, as a as an admissions committee member or as a file reader, um, you often don't get to meet a candidate in person because it will often be other people who will be conducting the interviews, given the volume of interviews that are being done. Um, so videos can be a really nice way to get a glimpse of the candidates, right? And the, so that two-minute glimpse can be a very useful way to sort of cross-check things like communication skills, um, how does the person, um, you know, get their story across, and is there some coherence between how they present themselves in video and how they present themselves in the written application, um, how they present themselves and how the recommender presents themselves. So it's a very interesting addition to the overall, you know, puzzle um, that comes together to build a picture of the candidate. I have to say that I'm not a huge fan of those pre-recorded videos that candidates put together. Um, I personally prefer the 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 Kira format, where it's more of a sort of spontaneous exercise, which although that can be quite stressful for candidates, right? It's not it's not easy to have to respond to those spontaneous questions where you have, you know, just a few seconds to prepare and then you have True. to deliver your response and you've got 60 seconds and it cuts you off. Um, it's not, not an easy exercise. But I do feel that sometimes candidates tie themselves in, up in knots in thinking, you know, this has to be beautifully produced. It has to be professionally produced, you know, and they do like a thousand different cuts of their, of their video um, and I, that, that is not necessary, but I think they feel pressure to look like a movie star in their video, <laughs> right? Um, and, you know, maybe if you're Maria and you live in Hollywood, then that's, that's, uh, that's very doable. But to um, the average candidate, then um, it's, that's quite an intimidating exercise, I think. So I, I prefer the, um, the more spontaneous type of videos where I think that also the schools get a better sense for how the candidate communicates in a more spontaneous format rather than something where they've perhaps just learned a script and they are delivering a script that they've pre-prepared. Right. That's interesting. Uh, any other new things that you've noticed, Maria? Well, at Poets and Quants, you guys already ran a great article about the changes to uh, Columbia's application. So getting right. rid of early decision, moving to rounds. Um, I also think they got rid of their their question on uh, what's your favorite movie, song, or book uh, and why, which was sort of a, a chance for a bit of creative expression in the past. And now they've replaced it with a, um, a question around diversity, equity, and inclusion, which actually was a question they had a few years ago. Uh, they've resurrected it. And I was actually analyzing it uh, a couple of days ago. And if you look more closely at the wording, the bar, I think, has raised. So when they introduced that question, I believe, in either 2020 or 2021, it was more around what, when have you been challenged around diversity, equity, inclusion? They list out these sorts of um, kind of four or five different things that they look for, like you know, advocating for others or trying to end systemic prejudice or, or things along those lines. And then the question used to say, talk about a time you were challenged around one of these. And now the wording is much more around, tell us what actions you took. Um, so I thought that was really interesting, right? Because, I, you know, I think I think the school is indirectly saying like, look, it's one thing if two years ago you had no idea that systemic racism was a thing 
Um, and it was all news to you, but we're now in 2023, and hopefully you're at least trying to include others more in things like conversations. I mean, doesn't we? You don't all have to save the world. Uh, like I tell people, like not you're not. This is not a Nobel Prize comp- Peace Prize competition. This is a business school competition. But hopefully, you're at least trying to become somewhat more inclusive, even if you broadly define that inclusivity. So I did think that that was an interesting change as well. Yep. So for all of you out there who uh, you know are tracking this and intend to apply either round one, round two, round three, in the forthcoming admission season, you can check out a story. We, we It's called MBA Application Deadlines for the 2023-2024 Admission Cycle. You know, Harvard, Stanford, and Wharton are already done with their deadlines, and so is Yale and Duke and UVA, Darden and Michigan, uh, and new other schools are posting them um, as we move forward and closer to those round one deadlines. Uh, we update this story every single day when a new deadline comes out or when new essays come out. So it's a good place to to just see, you know, uh, put in your calendar. Um, those those dates when you're going to have to meet these deadlines and um, and, and get your application underway. Otherwise, thank you for listening. And Maria and Caroline, a joy as always. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. You've been listening to Business Casual, our weekly podcast. See you next week. Mm-hmm.